You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the True True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to continue on with my regular coverage of the series and the history of the Vietnam War, starting with issue number 79 of The Nom, and I will look at the beginning of 1973 which will include the months of January, February, and March. I'm also going to finish up the Punisher story we started a couple of episodes back by looking at Punisher War Journal number 53. Our song this time around is You're So Vain by Carly Simon, a song that was number one for the singer-songwriter for most of January of 1973. The song, as many know, is the subject of one of the bigger mysteries of pop music, as Simon has never fully revealed who exactly she is singing to. In several interviews with her and others over the years, it's been revealed that three men serve as the guy that she's referring to as Vane, and she has confirmed that one of them, specifically the subject of the second verse, is actor Warren Beatty. Over the years, she has revealed the names to a few famous people on the condition that they not give it away. They include... Howard Stern, NBC Sports Chief Dick Ebersol, and Taylor Swift. Simon has publicly said that the full truth behind the song will come out in bits and pieces. It's kind of like trying to figure out who Deep Throat was. Anyway, let's get into our first comic, which is the Nom number 79. This is the first of a three-part storyline called The Beginning of the End. It has a cover by original Nom artist Michael Golden that connects with issues 80 and 81 to create a full triptych image. This one shows four soldiers, three alive, one lying on the ground, wounded or dead. And while two are colored in blue, which I suppose is to represent shadow, the others are fully colored. One is trying to radio in for help while the other has his M16 in one hand and his companion in the other, and he is screaming taken alone it's a solid cover and definitely gets your attention with the other three it's the right hand side of the image and looks better when fit in with the other two the cover date by the way is april of 1993 and our release date was february 23rd 1993 this according to mike's amazing world of comics there is only one story this month they've set aside the stateside backup for a couple of issues and it's called tet the beginning of the end part one Grassroots. Our creative team is Don Lomax, 
Story, Wayne Van Zandt, Art, Phil Felix, Letters, John Calise, Colors, and the edits were by Tui Daly and DeFalco. Around noon on May 1st, 1972, the Arvin commanders issued the order to evacuate Quang Tri City, admitting their situation is hopeless. With over 4,500 rounds of enemy artillery falling on the city that day alone, the withdrawal becomes a wild, frenzied rout as the Arvin command disintegrates. South Vietnamese officers panic, fleeing for their lives, leaving their bewildered troops to escape any way they can. American advisors barely escape on four jolly greens and a six sands of the 7th Air Force from the Citadel in Guang Tri City. By May 5th, the Arvin defenders have regrouped and consolidated along the south bank of the Mai Khan River, south of the city in an attempt to keep way from meeting the same fate. And we open on the deck of the aircraft carrier from last issue, where Ed Marks and the ship's commander are talking about Nixon's recent announcement to mine the North Vietnamese harbors. They discuss whether or not the war can be won, and then Ed says that he is leaving the next day for Hawaii, where he will eventually go to the new last line of defense, the Mekong River. He arrives in the late afternoon and goes looking for Army Intelligence NCO Master Sergeant Briscoe, a.k.a. Bulldog, whom he met the previous issue. He also sees Dai Wei, whom he met back in issues 70, 71, and 72. Bulldog asks how they know one another, and Ed briefly tells him the story about Firebase Brass Hat. And then they watch the nearby Firebase Nancy get destroyed by U.S. bombers, as the Firebase is empty and they don't want the NVA to get their hands on American equipment. Daiwi talks about how he doesn't want to lose way after, again after losing Quang Tri and Bulldog, brings up the Tet Offensive in 68. Marx said that he was not in country in 68, he'd rotated out in 67. Bulldog then begins his story, which takes place when he was in Saigon. The flashback begins, and Bulldog sets the scene by describing Tet and how people in Saigon prepared for it. Meanwhile, operations and MACV headquarters which is where he was working, were very tense. They were noticing a lot of troop movement and a number of enemy strikes in the countryside. Bulldog reports for duty and gets sent out to investigate an unusual amount of activity in the cemeteries. The date is January 31st, 1968, and Bulldog is accompanied by a local named Nan. Bulldog climbs on top of a cemetery wall and spies a number of people emptying graves that were not full of bodies, but full of ammunition. He immediately gets back into his jeep and starts heading back to headquarters, but his jeep is hit by a rocket. He and Nan are okay, but soon have to run for cover as they are being shot at by the VC. They hide behind the overturned jeep and return fire until they run out of ammunition, and then Bulldog takes the jeep's spare gas can and turns it into a Molotov cocktail, which he throws at the VC. They make it back to MACV and are treated for their wounds. The doctor on staff tells them to take it easy, especially since the American embassy, which is where they are, is of no strategic importance and they have nothing to worry about. Bulldog doesn't believe it. He grabs Nan, he goes to f- and finds weapons and ammo for the two of them. Just as they're doing that, the VC make their way onto embassy grounds. Bulldog and Nan join other soldiers in the firefight. He mentions that LBJ was on the phone with the United States ambassador throughout, and while the building seemed to be holding, a few VC did get inside. One of them manages to make his way to a men's room, but he's shot dead by Bulldog, something that saves the life of the doctor from earlier. The firefight continues through the night and into the morning, and the U.S. soldiers and MPs finally turn the tide as the 101st Airborne arrives with help. 
The embassy is back in American hands by 0900, and the cleanup was underway by that afternoon. Bulldog then tells Ed that, quote, Militarily, the attack on the embassy was a disaster for Charlie, but after the press blew it all out of proportion and the anti-war movement back home got through distorting the facts, you'd have thought that Uncle Ho himself had set up housekeeping in the duty room. Ed replies that he remembers that right after that, LBJ announced he wouldn't run again, and Bulldog continues, quote, but that was just the first few hours of what was going to be the biggest offensive of the war and the major turning point for American opinion. For the next two weeks, the capital was in total chaos. For the first time, all-out war had come to downtown Saigon, and Nan and I were right in the middle of it. Next up is close to home. I have to admit I was a little wary of retreading ground that the book had covered. Granted, we haven't looked at the Tet Offensive since issues 24 and 25, and furthermore, issue 24 was called the beginning of the end, and I have to, imagine, have to imagine that this is a deliberate reference to the earlier stories of the city series. But one of the things that is different about the later issues of the series is that we are no longer covering the war in real time, so the writers and editors can do a three-part storyline about the Tet Offensive that's more in-depth. Here, Ed Marks is in a place for the purpose of plot, getting Bulldog to tell his story, and that story is someone who is, well, kind of a gung-ho G.I. Joe sort of character, if I'm being honest. He's appeared already, of course, and he did come off as a bit of a grizzled soldier who had seen a lot of action. But here he kind of resembles Duke or Hawk from the Joe comics and has the, quote, soldier's knowledge that's pretty much a trope. He doesn't trust the pencil pushers, he works on instinct. It works for the purposes of the story, but not necessarily for the purpose of making him more than an action figure of a character, if I'm being completely honest. As far as the story is concerned, it is a good action piece. Debate the success of the Ted Offensive, whether or not you agree with Bulldog at the end of the issue, that is. But what really is enough for debate is its size and scope. The reason that it gets as much attention as it does in the history of the Vietnam War is because it was huge. It wasn't just an attack on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, although that's what we see here. And we see it in kind of a tight setting. Instead of a history book overview, we get someone who wound up in the middle of it and had to hunker down and fight off the enemy. Yes, there is a little bit of classic war comic stuff from Lomax and Van Zant, but I, I did enjoy a number of the action beats. Bulldog's improvising with the gas can as several VC approach him is really cool, and the scene where he rescues the doctor in the men's room is actually pretty clever. Additionally, while I know there was an attack on the U.S. Embassy, I'm not 100% sure that Bulldog is the most reliable narrator. After all, he's telling at a war story, and while I know the comic is not set decades later, it's still far enough that he could be exaggerating a little or making his world out to be bigger than it really was. And I'm not saying that he's lying or that he should be discredited if he's doing it. I'm just suggesting more that Lomax is giving us a bit of metafiction without, like, telegraphing that he's giving us a bit of metafiction. Tim O'Brien covered this well in the things they carried with stories like How to Tell a True War Story. And what this winds up being is a good historical yarn, kind of like a fish story. You know, the fish always gets bigger every time you tell it. And I wonder how the story would grow from here. So as much as that sounds like gobbledygook on my part, and as much as I sound like I'm being critical of the issue, I still enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to the next two parts of the storyline. But right now, I'm going to cover letters and ads. 
Incoming this month, Adam Hubert, who is 13 years old from Monroe, Connecticut, says that he's got every issue. He criticizes 41, 51 through 53, and 67 through 69. Uh, because he thinks that superheroes should stay in their own books. And if you recall, 41 is the Cap Iron Man Thor issue, which, again, is not a superhero story so much as it's almost a criticism of, like, or, or a pointing out of why the superheroes don't go to the nom. Actually, I really like number 41 because it, it subverts the superhero fighting in the war trope. 51 through 53 and 67 through 69, by the way, are the two Punisher storylines, which I I have mixed feelings on. You know, in the greater context of the NOM, I think I said, I, you know, I, I don't think we really necessarily need them. It's kind of nice that we can skip over them if we have to. As far as the stories themselves, though, you know, they're... They're pretty good. They're not. They're not terrible stories. He does point out that he bought issue seventy six, and on the cover, J Rob's jacket said sixty eight through seventy one. He said if Rob had come to Vietnam, he would have in sixty eight. He would have never met Ed Marks. According to issue three, Rob was in Nam in sixty five, and and Tim Tui responds that yes, folks, we have astute readers. Call it a goof. Uh, my eyes saw 65, but my mind read 68. Good call, Adam. Adam, another Adam, named Adam Jensen from Modesto, California, uh, says he really liked the nom. His favorite issues are 72 through 74, but he has an idea for an upcoming issue. He says a pilot named Richie got hit by a Sam and got captured by the NVA in issue 60. When he's in prison, he meets a guy named Ramnerain, and I'd like to see Ed go and either rescue him or just find out what happened to him. The editor says, We have no plans to divulge what happened to Ramnerain. Some things are better left unsaid. However, if you want to see POWs get rescued, check out issue 84, 85, and 86 when the Punisher invades the Nam for the last time. Um, as you know, and, and this is something I'll probably point out more than once, um, 84 is the last issue of the series, and those three Punisher issues were never published as single comics. They ended up getting collected in a trade called the Punisher in the NOM Final Invasion. We've got Phil Bridges from Allentown, England. Derby, England. Allenton, not Allentown. He's 26 years old, he's English, he's interested in the Vietnam War, he started reading at issue 13, and fortunately a comic shop in Derby opened and they're trying to get back to uh, the back issues that he's missing. Um, he says, I personally believe you got the Vietnam War down to a T, I was glad to see the return of Ed Marks in your stateside storylines. Of past members of the 4th, 23rd mechanized infantry are brilliant, and I'd like to finish by asking a few questions. Will the NOM never ever end, like the war? Any chance of getting some of the cover armed t-shirts? And what does the future hold? Any more Punisher tie-ins? Um, now, of course, the Punisher tie-ins were from the previous letter, so we're not, we don't have to address that. But the two answers we get is, is according to the original premise, the NOM was going to end with issue 96. This was to represent the actual time of the official involvement. I would prefer to end with the book with issue 100 and do a big bash on it. However, if you readers want more, you, you've got to write. Um... He says that the corner box of art on the Punisher skull with a camo helmet was made into a t-shirt. Z.C. Rose of Clintwood, Virginia says he uh, really liked issue 75. Milai was a tragedy, but this kind of thing has gone on in war all wars, I'm sure. 
I hope the people who don't understand or don't know about Milai read all about it. I suggest Lieutenant Callie's own account of what happened. Wasn't he just following orders? And weren't the men under Lieutenant Callie just following orders? Come on, people, wake up and smell the coffee. These men were just under orders from someone higher up. I guess I had to write express some of my opinions and try to get people to see another side of the story. Think about publishing this letter. It's an important various views are allowed to be heard. I'll close for now and tell you guys to keep up the good work. The reply is, we did our best to show both sides and thanks for the support. Orders are orders, but when do those same orders become murder? It was a rough situation. I'm glad I wasn't there. M.M. Lenard II, um, who I believe is, uh, he's a fourth Marine, so he's a Marine himself. He's writing out of Camp Pendleton, says... Issue number 75 is one of the most horrifying but shocking reads ever. The darkest side of humanity is revealed. That Milai story has got to be told. As a Persian Gulf War veteran, we all feel lucky. No incident like that happened over here. Nam did not produce victors, just victims. As Lieutenant William Kelly learned, the first thing lost in the war is innocence. Thank you for revealing the truth to us. He says, uh, thank you for the letter, but you're talking about two this is the editor about two totally different views here uh, wars here sorry you're comparing 100 hours to eight official years you guys did a great job and should be proud of what you accomplished but different times and situations bring about different reactions and then finally my father and i this is from george marion landace of wilmington delaware he says my father and i are avid readers they're his favorite issues issue number seven because it's so informative on the events leading up to U.S. involvement in the war. We also believe it could have been explained further. For example, number seven was being told from the view of an ex-Viet Cong. It'd be interesting to have other views. France had an interesting part in the shaping of Vietnam, then known as Indochina. Perhaps an ex-foreign legionnaire could make an appearance in a future issue. And then the editor replies that in issue 87, they'll be featuring a story told from the POV of a North Vietnamese army regular. That, by the way, will be the final issue of the series. It will be issue 84, as I mentioned. There's uh, no not there's no nom notes this month, but um, there's another picture of next issue's cover, and then they said that believe it or not, uh, they did the triptych and they published the covers out of order. The cover for 79 is actually part three of a triptych, and 80 is part one, and 81 is part two, and you can link them all together. Ads this month, we have an ad for the alien abduction movie Fire in the Sky, starring D.B. Sweeney, Robert Patrick, Craig Schiffer, Peter Berg, and James Garner. I don't think I've ever actually seen this. I may actually, uh, it, it's about, I think it's based on a true story of an alien abduction, this says, according to this night, November of 1975. Um, it's a cool-looking poster because you've got Sweeney down in the lower left-hand corner and an, a, a beam of light shining from the upper right, So, and it splits the um, the two text pieces. So uh, even if this movie wasn't cool, the poster itself, at least, is, is well-composed. We have Pro Quarterback for Super Nintendo and Genesis from Trade West Sports. The X-Men on video, there's Enter Magneto and Deadly Reunions. So I'm imagining that we are getting into the X-Men animated series video releases. We have an ad for Sega Music Video. You can make your own. And it's this oh, it's this it's this early 90s way of like using different like stretched out bold versions and then thinner versions of the same typeface to make it look cool. And um, according to this, um, you can 
edit, mix, and create your own explosive, high-impact, incredibly cool, absolutely new music videos for Mega Rap Act, Crisscross, and Global Supergroup CNC Music Factory. What are you waiting for? So you you load your revolutionary new compact disc into your Sega CD, and um, you select edit slice dice and you create like music videos it's from so I, I on some level this is a pretty revolutionary idea for the early 90s and video games and and, and software and things like that like video editors these things weren't easy to come by back in the day and um especially even on a pc which which didn't really have the graphics capacity that like we have now but for the time that's that's pretty impressive that they were at least trying something i don't know how successful they were Entertainment this month is around. We've got some of the um, we've got some of the things that uh, that we usually see, but we've got two of the Marvel Unlimited series come out this month. We've got uh, Spidey Unlimited number one, which is the beginning of a major fourteen part Venom and Carnage storyline. I believe that's Maximum Carnage, with stunning artwork by Ron Lim. It's a can't miss. X Men. Unlimited number one is a, is features an all-new 64-page X-Men series on a high-quality coded paper. Oh, God, that paper. X-Men Unlimited number one is a must-have for all fans, and it's highly recommended. And I believe these were the fifth-week quarterly books that they would put out because the X-Men and Spider-Man all had four titles going. Um, I, I mean, granted, if you count X-Factor and the X-Force, but like it was one of those things where, I mean... Shortly after this, I believe I stopped buying X-Men altogether because it just got too expensive for me and I wanted to buy more DC stuff anyway. Cable is back in an all-new action-packed monthly series. That is going to be blisteringly hot. Superman Returns. Oh, here we go. Reign of the Superman. Each of these issues is polybagged and that's going to be blazing hot. Turok. Professor Allen... And the quarter bins will be happy to know that entertainment this month, this time around, is advertising Turok Dinosaur Hunter, number one, the ultimate quarter bin book. And of course, it is highlighted by a chromium embossed foil cover. It's going to be Valiant's next big hit, and it is so hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. Ugh. Youngblood Battle Zone. God, they tried. They overdid it with the Youngblood. Fleer basketball cards are. Uh, we have Fleer basketball cards. You know, in the in the usual sort of sort of ad. I never bought any basketball cards. We have Fabian Nacieza takes over the soapbox for Fabe Fabe's raves. He's plugging Wonder Man. So there you go. Then we got the the bullpen bulletins with comparing February to Hervé Villachese. So the plane, the plane, you know, because it's short. Yeah, really good, guys. Uh, let's see. There was a bash at the British Museum of Natural History, the creators of the Marvel's dinosaurs there. Apparently, Hildy Mystic's assistant editor, Professor James Felder, bagpipes, and he actually was written in the New York Times for that. And one th group that never fails to inspire us is the hardcore mock and roll band Green Jello. If you thought Kiss was outrageous in the 1970s, wait till you see Green Jello. These guys dress up in costumes so outrageous they make the X Men look like mutants. 
Green Jello has a Funkadelic video and five-song CD out in stores now with an album on the way. Since emerging from the refrigerator, the band has been touring the country, hitting up various nightclubs and comic book conventions, including the San Diego Comic-Con. Needless to say, these guys are big-time Marveloids from way back when Jerry Lee Lewis was wearing blue suede baby booties. And just the other week, the G.J. Gang came up to the Marvel offices to take a squint of the House of Ideas where we got a gander of them. Oh, man, I, I forgot Green Jello existed. Um, from what I understand, they had to change their band name once they they printed the album or the EP or whatever because of the, like copyright, they got sued or something. Or the, there was a threatening lawsuit from like General Foods or whoever whoever makes Jello, so they changed their name to Green Jelly. And um, they had a song called The Three Little Pigs. I had I don't have this anymore. I had the two a couple of Green Jelly songs on a tape that I, I taped off of a friend's CD copy. Um, it's just weird. Just early. I was about a sophomore in high school. I think around the time this came out. This just weird, weird novelty group stuff. Um, I think about a year later would be on the on the Jerky Boys. All right, let's go with this borderline blather thing that's going to make me turn this comic around. Advertorials, corporate culture, radio batons, double whammy, clothing doctor, political asylum, urban camouflage, blame shifting, personal digital assistance, contours of potential, cooling off periods, flash memory, chips, bias incidents, jumping on points, Case Studies, Harsh Realm, Freshman Agenda, Extinction Theories, Information Addicts, World Tours, Asset Allocation, Rack Wars, Elevator Eyes, Tradehawks, Gimrackery, Gimcrackery, and Selected Shorts. There's your bullpen bulletins. Uh, we have Flashback, The Quest for Identity. It's the first CD-ROM game in a cartridge. It's available for the Sega Genesis. We have a, ooh, a new Big On Chocolate ad. But here's the difference. Instead of a comic book, we have a picture of one, two, three guys in what looks like a classic car. It's red, of course. And two girls, one uh, with long hair, one with short hair, kind of looks like uh, Jenny from California Dreams, walking by and looking at them. They're at the beach, the ocean's in the background. And, um... Above it, it says "Big Wave," and uh, each person is labeled. And 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 of course, being that this is the early '90s, the one, two, three, four, five that label the per- people in the picture all are different typefaces because it's cool. And number one is the maestro. This guy is really just 
eating his three musketeers and he's staring ahead at the steering wheel or he's looking out the windshield and he just he he's just wearing like a leather jacket or something he's the coolest guy around who's feeling particularly cool because he thinks that girl is waving at him but he's not showing it then we got the guy in the varsity jacket who's looking back at his friend that's stan the jock who's exercising his right to rag at his friend maestro stan thinks the girl is really waving at him and then we got number three guy we got he's in he's in glasses a flannel over a t-shirt and jeans and he's the professor. He's the brain. He can't figure out the girl who the girl is waving at. But he assures Maestro and Stan, it's not them. Number four is the girl. Because it's the girl. Actually, all she wants is one of their three musketeers, registered trademark, bars. But hey, it's a start. Number five is the bar. Of all things big in life... One of the th- biggest things is the big chocolate of a Three Musketeers big on chocolate. And the back to- the back cover is a Crunch and Munch ad where you can get a Marvel trading card in some Crunch and Munch. So that'll do it for nom number 79. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, I'll look at the Punisher Ward Journal number 53. Stick around. For years, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man. From giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests. From massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures. From romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will Fire and Water conquer next? Do you like good music? Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And I am back. Punisher War Journal number 53 hit the stands on the same day as the nom number 79. It has the same April cover date. 
retailing at $1.75. It is a cover by Gary Quapis that shows the Punisher and Manic Iceman firing at someone while Frank has the girl they were sent to rescue. It is very much a screaming Punisher action cover. It's not terrible. It's just pretty much what we'd expect from a screaming Punisher action cover of this time. The cover copy says, Incoming! And it's probably something that would get a fan of the character excited, but isn't as interesting as the previous issues. The title is Heart of Stone. Our credits are Chuck Dixon. Story, Gary Quapiz. Art, Glynis Oliver. Colorist, Richard Starkings. Letterer, Don Daly. Editor, and Tom DeFalco is the editor-in-chief. We open at the conclusion of the previous issue. Iceman has tasered the Punisher and run off, and Frank is now surrounded by the paramilitary soldiers that he was facing off against. They attempt to bring him back to their camp, but he fights back. He kills several of them, and then he arms himself. Back in the camp, Iceman is being held captive, and he's being beaten. Armstrong, the paramilitary leader, wants to know who he works for, and Iceman tells him that he's been paid by Dina's father to rescue her. She really doesn't want to go home and says that the Sword of Liberty needs her. Meanwhile, Frank sneaks towards camp, gets closer, and kills some more people. Back at the camp, Armstrong is becoming more paranoid while Dina tries to comfort him and he leaves his tent when he hears his men firing in Frank's direction. He runs out and helps the men hunt him down, but Frank is elusive. He unties Iceman and they take Dina. There's a chopper they can grab and Frank decides he wants to kill Dina because he just wants to waste the camp and get out. Iceman pulls his gun on Frank and says that he is taking her back and he's collecting his money. Armstrong and his boys then bust in, firing. Frank and Ice return fire and fight their way to the chopper, while Armstrong rants and fires at them. He is eventually shot and killed as he reaches for his sword so he can die with his sword in his hand, and Frank steps on his hand and shoots him, narrating, This one's not going to Valhalla. He's going where all the lawyers go. Dina rushes to Armstrong's side, and Frank orders her to get on the chopper and be left behind. Ice says, They called me Iceman, but you deserve that handle. He's wrong, Frank narrates. Ice can melt. So it turned out all right, Ice says. The girl goes home, I get paid, and you get to do your thing. Yeah, happy endings for everyone, Frank says. We then close out the story with... The girl gets to go back to the arms of her loving family. She becomes the captain of the cheerleading squad. Ice invests his money wisely and lives out his life lying on a back somewhere, surrounded by centerfold models. My wife and kids are waiting at the front door for me when I get home. Happy endings are for suckers. Um, I don't know where to start with this, to be honest. <laughs> I should point out that at the same time that he was writing this book, Chuck Dixon was well into a run on Detective Comics, and those books are outstanding. This... I don't want to say that Dixon was phoning it in here because he's clearly having fun with the action and the dialogue, but it's nowhere near his nom run or even the other Punisher books of his that I've read. Then again, he's got an objective here. He has to tell a two-parter where Frank runs into an old buddy. They take a bunch of terrible people, kill them, and rescue someone, and they leave. I mean, he does his job. The art, it's pretty inconsistent. There are pages and scenes that are interesting and dynamic, and there are some that are scratchy and awkward in a very 90s sort of way. Um, It's nowhere near, say, like Brigade (laughs) or Bloodstrike number one. Uh, Bloodstrike number one came out the same month as this, and it had a Feel the Blood cover gimmick, and I fell for that gimmick. 
Um, but here there are a lot of men with their shirts off and a lot of yelling, and there are a lot of guns. There are so many guns, so very, very many guns. All right, that sounded flippant snarky, but look, the comic does its job. It's a quick read, and it's a fun action story. I kind of wish that we had seen a little more of the villain or made him a little more charismatic and less just kind of nut jobby because uh, he's just kind of like a one-note guy. It would have been really interesting to see him go up against like a David Koresh type of figure. I know we had that with like um, way back in the early part with the Mike Barron run of the issues that I've seen of the Rev and, and the, the general who was leading a white supremacist group out in the Midwest or something like that. So he, he's done it before, but like in the context of this where you have real events going on that Dixon could have pulled from um, or, or that he might have been able to to, to look into. Um, just the, the villain the villain being such an over-the-top psycho just, just didn't really do it for me. But it was still fun to see Frank put a bullet into him, so there's that. All right. I mean, it's a quick review of a story. There, there's not much to it. It's, you know, that's the second part. He got captured at the end. He saves his friend. They rescue the girl. They kill a ton of people and lay waste to the place. Justice is served, so to speak. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to go ahead and look at historical context to take us home. And we are going to start with the first few months of 1973. If 1968 and the Tet Offensive is the beginning of the end, then 1973 is that end, at least as far as the United States are concerned. Here's what was going on according to both Wikipedia and the History Place. In January 8th, 1973, Kissinger and Lee Docteau resumed negotiations in Paris. On the 9th, all remaining differences resolved are resolved between the two, and President Thieu, who was once again threatened by Nixon with a total cutoff of American aid to South Vietnam now unwillingly accepts a peace agreement which still allows North Vietnamese troops to remain in South Vietnam. Two labels the terms tantamount to surrender for South Vietnam. On January 11th, all Australian involvement in hostilities ceases. On January 15th, citing progress in peace negotiations, U.S. President Richard Nixon announces the suspension of offensive action in North Vietnam. On the 23rd, Nixon announces that an agreement has been reached which will, quote, end the war and bring peace with honor. And then on January 27, 1973, the Paris Peace Accords are signed by the United States, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and the Viet Cong. Under the terms, the United States agrees to immediately halt all military activities and withdraw all remaining military personnel within 60 days. The North Vietnamese agree to an immediate ceasefire and release of all American POWs within 60 days. An estimated 150,000 North Vietnamese soldiers presently in South Vietnam are allowed to remain. Vietnam is still divided. South Vietnam is considered to be one country with two governments, one led by President Thieu, the other led by Viet Cong, pending for future reconciliation. Also on January 27, 1973, the last American soldier to die in combat in, in Vietnam uh, passes. That is Lieutenant Colonel William B. Nold. And Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird announces that the draft is ended in favor of voluntary enlistment. On February 12th, Operation Homecoming begins the release of 591 American PWs from Hanoi. On February 21st, in neighboring Laos, the government of Laos and the communist Patet Lao sign a ceasefire agreement 
called the Vientiane Treaty. I think I'm butchering that. I apologize. On March 6th, Operation End Sweep resumes after a short suspension in response to North Vietnamese delays in releasing prisoners of war. This is the United States' operation to remove the mines they had planted in the various harbors and waterways of North Vietnam, such as Haiphong Harbor. The resuming and eventual completion of Operation End Sweep would help the United States fulfill one of the obligations it had signed in the Paris Peace Accords. The operation itself was, was a success, with only one mine being set off during the sweep on March 9th of 1973. March 17th, many of the few remaining United States soldiers begin to leave Vietnam. One reunion of a former POW is immortalized with his family is immortalized in the Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph Burst of Joy. The photo, taken by South Veter, shows the daughter of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Strim running toward him with her arms outstretched. I'll post the photograph in the show notes, but here's what Wikipedia has to say. The first group of POWs leaving the prison camps in North Vietnam left Hanoi on a U.S. Air Force Lockheed C-141 Starlifter Strategic Airlift aircraft nicknamed the Hanoi Taxi which flew them to Clark Air Base in the Philippines for medical examinations. On March 17th, the plane landed at Travis Air Force Base in California. Even though there were only 20 POWs of that first increment released aboard the plane, almost 400 family members turned up for the homecoming. Lieutenant Colonel Robert L. Sturm, U.S. Air Force, made a speech, quote, on behalf of himself and the other POWs who had arrived from Vietnam as part of Operation Homecoming. Smithsonian Magazine says that Veter, uh, who had been standing in a crowded bullpen with dozens of other journalists, noticed the sprinting family and started taking pictures. He said you could feel the energy and the raw emotion in the air. Sturm was shot down over Hanoi on October 27, 1967, while leading a flight of F-105s on a bombing mission, and he was not released until March 14, 1973. The centerpiece of the photograph is Sturm's 15-year-old daughter, who was Lori, who was excitedly greeting her father with outstretched arms as the rest of the family approaches directly behind her. Despite outward appearances, the reunion was actually an unhappy one for Sturm. Three days before he arrived in the United States, the same day he was released from captivity, he received a Dear John letter from his wife Loretta informing that their marriage was over. Sturm later learned that Loretta had been with other men throughout his captivity, receiving marriage proposals from three of them. In 1974, the Sturms divorced and Loretta remarried, but Lieutenant Colonel Sturm still ordered by the courts to provide her with 43% of his military retirement pay once he retired from the Air Force. He was later promoted to full colonel and retired from the Air Force in 1977. After Burst of Joy was announced as the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, all the family members depicted in the picture received copies. They all display it prominently in their homes, except for the stern patriarch, who says he cannot bring himself to display the picture, given the betrayal he suffered from his wife on the home front. About the picture and its legacy, Lori Sturm Kitching, who's the daughter, remember, once noted, We have this very nice picture of a very happy moment, but every time I look at it, I remember the families that weren't reunited and the ones that aren't being reunited today. Many, many families, and I think... I'm one of the lucky ones. Donald Goldstein, a retired Air Force colonel and co-author of a prominent Vietnam War photojournalism book, The Vietnam War, The Stories and the Photographs, says bursts of joy, quote, After years of fighting a war we couldn't win, a war that tore us apart, it was 
finally over and the country could start healing. And once again, I have to give credit for Wikipedia for that information. It is a fascinating story when you really break it down. It's something um, I don't even I didn't even tell it. I just told it for the, the fact that you know, the photograph is very, very famous. And here's the story behind it. But it, it is a reminder of the complexities of humanity in the face of things like this. And how they are both positive and negative, um, and uh, and and I think showing that complexity helps enrich uh, our views of, of events like this and stories like this, especially stories behind the photographs. I don't think it takes anything away from the photograph or the emotion of the photograph or the why the photograph won the Pulitzer Prize. It is a it is an, an outstanding photograph, but uh, it's just it, it's 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 sad. Uh, at the same time so getting back into our historical list here uh on march 29th 1973 the last remaining troops withdraw from vietnam as president nixon declares quote the day we have worked all worked and prayed for has finally come america's longest war and its first defeat thus concludes during 15 years of military involvement over 2 million americans served in vietnam with 500,000 seeing actual combat, 4,244 were killed in action, including 8,000 airmen. There were 10,446 non-combat deaths. 153,329 were seriously wounded, including 10,000 amputees. Over 2,400 American PW MIAs were unaccounted for as of 1973. According to the United States Department of Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, the official number unaccounted for as of October 12, 2018 is 1,592. This number is comprised of 452 in what was once North Vietnam, 795 in what was once South Vietnam, 290 in Laos, 48 in Cambodia, and 7 in China. And that'll do it for this episode. I'll be back next time with the second part of the beginning of the end in the NAM issue number 80. I'll also be looking at April, May, and June of 1973, and as well as some more, well, humorous portrayals of Vietnam courtesy of our favorite family. Until then, check me out on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Leave reviews on iTunes. Feel free to mail in and tell me what you think. And as always, thanks for listening. And take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.